Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. As we continue in our study of the book of Daniel, we are in the 11th chapter, and today we are looking at verses 5 to 35. This book of history and prophecy has been a great learning experience for all of us in the class, and class teacher Doug Brady is far from finished, as we have this chapter to finish and one more chapter to go in Daniel. Today's lesson has been titled, The Decline of the Grecian Empire. You will certainly want to have your Bible open to the 11th chapter of Daniel as we begin. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We would love to meet you and have fellowship with you should you be in the area. Well, Doug has gone to the podium and is ready to begin, so here now is our longtime Believer's Bible Class teacher, Doug Brady. There are certain books that you can get that help you as you're preparing either a sermon or a Bible lesson on particular passages in the Scripture. And there's one particular work that if you were to look at, and it would talk about Daniel 11, 5 through 20, it would tell you this passage may be good for a Bible college but you're not going to get any application out of this, uh, either in a sermon or as a Bible lesson. Well, then you can tell that's real encouraging. You're studying. But we're going to do the best to prove that fellow wrong. And we're going to look at this. Now, there's going to be some history involved. And for those of you who hate history, I'm really sorry because I was a history major. So we're going to look at some history today. But before we start, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the time that we can gather together here. And I thank you for how much you love us and how much you forgive us. But Father, help us to understand that that love that you've given to us and the forgiveness you provide us, we need to be sharing. Help us to always be prepared at any opportunity you give us. Help us to learn to recognize those opportunities and to share your love and forgiveness. At the same time, Father, help us to learn of this valuable weapon called prayer that we have and that we, as Christian soldiers, need to be exercising that weapon. Help us to realize that if we don't think we're a Christian soldier, then we'll be the first one shot. So, Father, help us to realize the war that we're in. Help us to realize the stakes that are there. And I just ask you today to bless this time we spend together, that you speak through me, and that things I maybe wanted to say I shouldn't say, just bottom from my mind. Instead, have the Holy Spirit teach each and every one of us, including myself. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Now, as we lead up, you remember that this vision 
that's going to be set out in chapters 11, starting in verse 2, through the end of chapter 12, is the last vision in the book. If I was making chapters, there would only be 10 chapters in Daniel. All uh, 10, 11, and 12 would be one chapter, chapter 10. But it's not. They, the guy who did it divided it. You know, those don't come. Chapter divisions didn't come in the original manuscript. Uh, they're not divinely inspired. But if you look back at chapter 9 and chapter 10 and the type of prayer that Daniel was praying before he got this vision, I want you to think about this. Is there anybody in here who's prayed for three weeks straight? Raise your hand if you've prayed for three weeks straight. You know, that's the main thing you're doing all day is praying. How about just you pray all day? Is there anybody in here who's just prayed all day once? Why is it that we don't do that? Well, the answer is real simple. It's so dang hard. It's hard to do that. But you know what these prayers tell us? It tells us, it should be clear now, prayer is war. And we need soldiers who are willing to fight. Now, let's look at an outline of this chapter, the first part of this chapter. I think it'll help us to remember and understand a few things in this outline. Number one, it talks about four Persian kings that will come right after Daniel. Daniel's living during the time of Cyrus the Great. It talks about the next four Persian kings ending in Xerxes. We've already studied that, that portion of this chapter. Then it talks about the new Grecian Empire, emperor, I mean, Alexander. And in verses 3 and 4, it talks about him's coming into power and what he does. And then it's talking about his demise and the division of his kingdom before his four generals. And then it's going to talk about warfare between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Now, how many kings, how many parts was the empire divided into? Four. four. Well, Don, why would it not talk about the other two and just and just, just focus now on two? Because they were insignificant. Insignificant in relation to what or who? A, a plethora of Israel. Israel. They weren't, they weren't relevant to Israel. Yes, well, I'm glad that somebody's willing to help you. I'm glad that somebody believes you're not past help, but I want you to see that these next verses 5 through 19 are going to be about warfare between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And what did we describe this constant warfare as? A feud. Now, if you're going to have a feud, what do you know is going to be involved? A woman. Exactly right. <laughs> For once. Now, why is it that you know that so well? No, I'm not going to. Don't, don't say anything, Don. I don't want to get you in trouble. Now, so this prophecy is going to cover events that took, took place over 700 years. They didn't start till about 200 years after the time of Daniel. And this prophecy is going to be made in great detail. Then it's going to tell us about a brief reign of, of one particular king, a guy named Seleucus the, the Fourth, And then it's going to talk about what everything in this chapter has been building up to, and that is the arrival of a guy by the name of Antiochus IV. Now, Antiochus IV, I don't like calling him by his full name, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, because what that basically is saying is, I am a manifestation of God. 
There's only been one manifestation of God, and it darn sure was not Antiochus. But uh, so I like to call him just Antiochus or Antiochus the, the fourth. And then verses 22 through 33 are going to talk about his reign and his great oppression of Israel. And that we're going to see that some Jews who live in Israel, they're going to leave the faith because of the persecution. Now, I want you to stop for just a second and we'll get into this more. What percentage of the church in America do you think would leave the faith if the gas is turned up, if the persecution heightens up. 90%. I was going to go 80, but maybe 90. Maybe, let's ask this question. What percentage do you think of our church would back off and say, not me, I'm not involved? I would hope it would be less than the 90, but that's because we don't have people challenge us. Verses 33 through 35 are going to speak of events that are going to occur before the 27th verse of Daniel. And I put a provision in there, a, a verse, to describe that. It's in Luke chapter 21. And you can look at that and you can see. But I'm going to move on because I'm aiming at the applications of this passage. Now, let's talk about the feud Let's talk about the warfare as we go on. We're going to be starting in verse 5. This passage is going to cover events that took place from 323 B.C. until 164 B.C. It's going to involve Syria. It's going to involve Egypt. And it's going to involve Israel. The prophecy is going to give us graphic detail of certain events that occur. Now, it'll use a term, king of the north. The king of the north is Syria. It's going to use a term king of the south, and the king of the south is Egypt. It may refer to it as king of the north as the Seleucid Empire. It may refer to the king of the south as the Ptolemaic. And by the way, when you see that word, the P is silent on it. It's Ptolemy. Now, let's look real quick at the kings. I put these dynasties, the kings of the south, and the kings of the north there for you. It's kind of like the hawker used to say, if you don't have a program, you can't tell who the players are. And that's the concept here. You'll be able to look back at this. I put their full names. I even put Epiphanes, which I don't like. It's one thing to call yourself Antiochus the Great. It's a whole nother thing, Antiochus Epiphanes, or even Antiochus Theos. What does Theos mean? God. Oh, how these men think they can do that, I just don't understand. Now, let me show you a little bit the kind of wars we're going to be facing. Uh, here's five of them. There's going to be some more afterwards we're not going to get to today. But you'll see those five wars are all part of this feud. The feud will heat up, cool down, heat up, cool down, and it'll keep going, and it will keep going. So... I want you to see one other thing before we start into the details, and that's this. This was the division between, let me see, the, the four, Cassandra, Lysimachus, Seleucid, and Ptolemy. Now, I want you to notice this. In the start, the Ptolemaic Empire included Israel. You see that? However, if the Seleucid Empire is going to attack the Ptolemaic Empire, what do they have to go through? If the Ptolemaic Empire is going to attack the Seleucid Empire, what do they have to go through? Israel. You begin to see Israel is going to be marched over constantly. 
And Seleucus wants Israel. Ptolemy doesn't want to give it to him. And eventually Seleucid is going to get it. And so you will see how that works and what's going on there. Now let's start Daniel chapter 11, verse 5. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. And his dominion will be a great dominion indeed. Now, after some years, now let's stop right there for a second, because what we've got is Ptolemy I, and we've got Seleucus I. They're coming in, and at first they're friendly. And that's this prince. And then it's going to divide up because Ptolemy is going to become so strong that he said, maybe I should have Syria. Why should I let him keep having it? So after many years, they will form an alliance. Now, when those days to be forming an alliance, what do you got to do? Ah, after some years, they will form alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. Now, this is the real start of the feud. And what's at the center of it? A woman. What was this woman's name? Berenice, like my aunt. Well, I would say Berenice. Well, that wasn't my aunt. Well, I didn't think it was your aunt. Uh, and now, Berenice, she, this is a carving of her. And this next is a, uh, that's, the first one was kind of a wood carving. This is a statue of her. And then there's a little picture of her on the coin. Now, History tells us that she was quite beautiful. And so what happened was the king of the south, which was, I believe, Ptolemy III, came to the king of the north and he said, let's make a deal. And they started negotiating. And the king of the north was aware of his daughter and what, how beautiful she was. And he kind of wanted her. But here was the deal. King of the North, you're married to a lady by the name, well, maybe not a lady, but you're married to a woman named Laodicea. And you have children, including sons from Laodicea. So here's the deal I'll make with you. I'll give you my daughter as your wife if you divorce Laodicea and you declare that her children can never sit on the throne of the King of the North. The only ones to sit on the throne are the children you get from my daughter, Berenice. And after a while, the king of the north agreed to that deal. And he divorced Laodicea, and he made the proclamation, and he married Bernice, and he had a number of children by Bernice. Everything is going according to plan. Then the king of the south, Ptolemy III, passes away. And guess who starts to come back in the picture? Laodicea. Laodicea. And she says to the king, listen, honey, why don't we see if there's anything left here? We could have a little clandestine meeting in Ephesus. Will you meet me in Ephesus? Why, sure I will. I, you know, we can talk. There's nothing wrong with a little talking. 
The king of the north never made it out of Ephesus. He was poisoned. Berenice, shortly thereafter, was poisoned. Her children were all killed. The retinue that came with her from Egypt were all killed. What is that saying? Hell hath no fury? Something like that. Anyway, and that's what's really starting this feud. Now, Berenice had a brother. And he's now king of Egypt. You're going to kill my sister? You're going to break the deal? He gets, he says, boys, saddle up, let's ride. And so here we go. And that brings us to verse 7. He says, but one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, that is his father's place, and he will come after their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also, their gods with their metal images, their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Now what happens? Her brother comes up here, and he attacks the king of the north, and he is furious. This is Ptolemy III. His father was Ptolemy II, and he goes after them. Laodicea had put Seleucus II on the throne, and king of the south wipes them out. And they go through, and they loot and plunder the entire country. And all of these gods that are made of precious metals and other silver and gold, all of that goes back down to Egypt. And so now Ptolemy III is rich. I'm not going to tell you he starts buying real estate, but um, because if you remember, Pharaoh already owned all the real estate because Joseph bought it for him. So he's now down there, and but he's rich and he's weary of battle. So why keep fighting? I'm doing great. Well, that allows the king of the north to restock, so to speak, and resupply. And that starts in verse 15. Then the king of the north will come, and he will cast up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground. You see, they became soft because they weren't training for war. You want your military to be well-trained. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, nor will their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. And he will also stay for a time in the beautiful land. Now, what's the beautiful land? Israel, with destruction in his hand. And so the new king of the north is going to be fighting against Israel also because he wants Israel. And this king of the north is Antiochus III. And the feud was getting close to dying with Antiochus III. And then his son took over Antiochus the Great. And he's the one that went after Antiochus III. So we had Antiochus III Theos, and he was the one who destroyed the south. And now he's about to die, and he puts his son, Antiochus IV, is going to be, I think it's no Seleucid IV, excuse me. But Antiochus the Great decides he wants to negotiate another treaty. They're both tired of fighting, and he has this daughter, and he knows some things about this daughter. This daughter is the kind of woman 
who can get a man to do whatever she wants. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever run anything like that. This daughter, she's not that old, but the new king down south is only 14. And if, if I get her down there now, she will control him, she will be loyal to me, and I'm going to run both kingdoms. And he comes and we don't need to be fighting anymore. Let's make a treaty. I'll give your new king my daughter. And the two of them will just have a grand time. And there was another reason. You see, Antiochus the Great, he wanted to expand his kingdom northward into Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, and even maybe into Greece. But he couldn't have an enemy on the back door. So... He said, I'll give you my daughter. Now, does anybody know what the daughter's name was? Cleopatra. Cleopatra. Now, just so we know, is this the Cleopatra who is well known for being delivered in a rug or a carpet to Caesar? No, it's not. That's Cleopatra VII. This is Cleopatra I. But we've had, do we have any pictures of her, Jerry? This is an artist's rendition taken from a, a sculpture of her. Now, this is more modern than the next one that we don't know how accurate it is, but that's what this artist is suggesting Cleopatra looked like. She did have a reputation for being quite beautiful and seductive, and she did go down and fulfill one of her father's predictions. She basically won over the king. But she saw this as a means where she could be empowered, not controlled by her father, not controlled by her husband, but she instead in control of the empire of the South. And so that's exactly what Cleopatra did. Well, how do you think her father felt about that? He was smart enough to know that, well, the, the king of the South didn't win her over. No, she's doing this on her own. And, but he decides anyway, he's going to try and attack northward and expand his kingdom that way. So in Daniel 9, 11, verse 18, he said, Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. And he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. So Antiochus the Great sought to capture, invade and capture Asia Minor and parts of Greece. But a new power was appearing on the world scene. And Daniel refers to it here as a commander. Now it's interesting. Almost always when you had a war, who would lead the war? Your, your war party? The king. Uh, when Alexander was had his empire, who led the war? The emperor, Alexander. But now we have a new form of government. It's not a kingdom. It's not a democracy. It's a republic. And while it was a republic, they would have certain generals who would lead their battles or their military efforts. And that was Rome. And so Rome came in. And the commander mentioned in verse 18 was a fellow by the name of Lucius Cornelius Scipio Asceticus. And he would just go by Scipio, is what most historians refer to him as. But he's the one who said, no, 
you're going back to Antiochus III, and Antiochus III said, no way, you don't tell me what to do. And so they fought a battle. And they fought a battle at a place called Magnesia, which is in Asia Minor, and Antiochus III got routed by the Roman legionnaires. And that was when Rome was really coming into its full strength and the military might that it had. So what the Romans did, you didn't obey our instructions, and so we are going to levy a heavy tribute on you. Now we'll let you go back to Syria, and we'll let you reign there as long as you're paying the tribute. But if you don't, we're coming after you, and, and we will destroy you. Well, the problem is he spent most of his money putting together this army and navy who was going to attack Asia Minor and Greece. So what does he do? He says, I know where there's some money. It's in the storerooms of the Temple of Zeus back home. So I'm going to go home. I'm going to loot the Temple of Zeus, and that's how I'll pay this tribute. All right? So he goes back, and he does exactly that. But how do you think the people respond? Well, as a result of him looting the temple, there's like a revolution of sorts, and he's killed. So, that brings us to Daniel chapter 11, verse 20. So, then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Now, here again, the jewel of his kingdom. Where is that? Israel. To the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. Antiochus' son was named Seleucus IV, and he ascended to the throne after his father's untimely demise. But now, the first year's tribute has been paid, but what are you going to do now when the next one comes? If you don't pay, who's coming down your neck? Rome. So he says, I'm learning a lesson from my dad. I'm not going to loot and raid one of our temples. I'll raid and loot somebody else's temple. So he hires this guy who has technically the, the title of minister of finance or finance minister, but he's really just a tax collector. And his name is Heliodorus. And Heliodorus is going to go in and he is going to go to Israel and loot the temple there, which he does. And he brought all the wealth back to Seleucus. But as he's seeing all this wealth, what do you think is going on in Heliodorus' mind? I should have some of this. So he goes back, and all of a sudden, Seleucus IV gets sick. And he gets worse and worse very quickly. And he dies. It turns out he was poisoned. And who do you think did it? Heliodorus, and some of this wealth coming back from the promised land didn't make it back. And so now things are going, now this is a hard thing for some people to understand, things are going just the way the Lord wants them to. And as far as the Lord God of Israel is concerned, all this feuding and all these machinations are merely a prelude to unveiling the beast. Now, when I say beast, I'm using that term with a lowercase b. Because there is one man in history, and I'm going to say one man alone, who is going to be the perfect prelude, the perfect 
type, the perfect example of the one who's coming, who's going to be the beast, capital B. He's going to be a picture of the Antichrist, of the man of lawlessness, and the man, uh, the son of perdition. And he is coming, and his name is Antiochus IV. Now, before we finish today, are there any real applications for us in this history passage? I'm going to suggest to you that there are a number. And we're going to look at them for the rest of the time that we have to see. Number one, I think anyone who has decided to be reasonable and open must conclude that Daniel writing this passage, this this chapter, between 536 and 533 B.C. when he died, recorded the history surrounding the promised land from 536 to 167 B.C. with accuracy, with specificity, accuracy and specificity that no mortal man could have. Now, it's interesting, at that point, the conservative, the liberal, and the progressive, and just the pure pagan scholars all agree. It is recorded with such accuracy and specificity that no mortal man could do it. Then, of course, that's where they both, all these groups diverge, because the conservative scholars are going to say, God gave this prophecy to Daniel. What it says in chapter 10 is true. An angelic messenger delivered it to him. It had been written in the writing of truth. And he just related to him what God wanted to show him in this vision. The others would say, no, there's no God involved here. What this is in 167 to 165, 163, some guy wrote this. They call it Maccabean Epigrapha. That is a false writing at the time where they claim to be Daniel, but it's a forgery. And he's writing actual history, not prophecy. That's the only way a man could get it this accurate. Now, that's what's going on here. But they seem to forget that Daniel was included in the Septuagint, and it was translated into, which a translation of Greek from the Hebrew, somewhere between 280 and 240 B.C. So how could it be written in 167 if it already existed? Of course, those guys also had never seen the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, by the way, were found in 1947, just so we set that record straight. I think we should consider instead what God says in one of his other prophets, the one of his other prophets, Isaiah. In Isaiah 48, 3 and 5, he says this, I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Therefore I declared them to you long ago, before they took place, I proclaimed them to you, so that you would not say, my idol has done them, or my graven image, or my molten image has commanded them. I wrote them first where you could read them before they ever happened because I'm God and there is no other. These kinds of prophecies prove that over and over and over again in this book. Now, I have heard people talk about some of these prophecies and they say, we don't want to argue with you about whether it was written before they happened or after they happened. We don't want to talk about that. Well, they don't want to talk about that because they don't like my proof. And they would lose if we have a fair argument. 
You know, now some of them want to say, I have a PhD in this and you don't, so I'm right. Now, that's a logical fallacy. Now, but there are some people who say, I've heard regarding these prophetical passages found in scriptures like Daniel 11, they claim that they contain accurate recitations. But that was because of this. You claim that there's these prophecies starting, say, in verse 35 and going to the end of the chapter, which are all future. When did Daniel make those prophecies, Brady, they'll say? Well, somebody between 536 and 533. Okay. And they haven't come true in 2,500 years? When are they going to happen? They've never happened, have they? No, they haven't happened yet. Well, they're not going to happen. All right, tell me when they're going to happen, Brady. Well, sometime in the future. When? Well, I don't know. When God has his time. That's what you keep saying, and they're just going to keep passing time and passing time, and nothing is going to happen. It's been this way for 2,500 years, and it's going to continue for the next 2,500 years. Nothing's happening. And I said, well, something's happening, happened today. Well, what's happened today? Well, there's a prophecy that he, that he made that came true. It's not in Daniel. It's in 2 Peter. Oh, what's that prophecy? Well, let me read it to you. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was before the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, but by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water by water. Why? So there could be a flood through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the great day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. I want you to think about that a second. That guy has just fallen into that trap. He has been prophesied about by the Lord God that mockers will come and they'll say these exact things. That's what they're saying. And they're just a fulfillment of prophecy themselves. Then the question comes, well, why is God waiting? There's a reason. And it's in the last part of that passage. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I want you to think about this just a second. Don, you don't mind if I use you as an example, do you? D-O-N? Yes. Okay. Now, let's, as this example, you're not a believer. All right? I know you are, but, but for this example, you're not. Can you put yourself in the mindset of a pagan for just a minute? It's going to be different. I'm glad that you will. Now, let's say God had planned to come back for his church in 2022, but he delays his coming till 2024 because in 2023, you become a believer. You don't have to spend eternity in hell like you would have if he'd come back in 2022 and you'd have been left behind. Wouldn't you rejoice in that event, in that fact? 
That's what he's saying. I don't want it to happen to anybody. Now, there's some people, theologians, who will tell you, now, wait a second. God already knows who's going to be saved and who's not. Yeah, that's true. And he has preordained who it's going to be and who he's not. That's based on your choice. God gave us a free will. He is not going to make anyone stand up at the great white throne judgment and say, well, you had no chance, and so you're going to hell. No, you had a chance, and he'll show them the chances over and over and over. And what he's saying here is God wants everyone saved. That's his will. Everyone saved. He didn't want any human being at all to go into hell. You mean he doesn't want Hitler to go to hell? He would prefer if Hitler to be saved. He wasn't, in my opinion. But uh, let's talk about national leaders. Because I think there's national leaders, uh, an application we ought to see here. National leaders come and go. And you know, it's interesting. I can remember I really, I first got involved in politics, so to speak, or, or was concerned about it in a, an election where the presidential candidates were Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater. And I can remember the first car I had, I had a bumper sticker on it, AUH2O, chemical for gold water. If you didn't catch that, use the chemical sign for gold, I figure you know what H2O stands for. Uh, and I was, of course, very disappointed. My client got clobbered. And we w went on, I found out later that dead people had voted in that election, and I couldn't imagine how that could happen and that we'd ever let that happen again. And we went on, and then a guy won who I was really strongly in favor of, a guy named Ronald Reagan. And I, I thought, man, this is a great president. After that, there were some people who won that I voted for, and their names were Bush, and I found that they were lying to me. I found that they're not much different than their opponents. And then we come to see some things, and I, I want you to see, we need to remember God is in control. He has a plan. That plan was written down in the writing of truth. The angel read a certain part of it and related it to Daniel. Did he stop with what he told Daniel where he was writing in that writing of truth? He's got it all written down. It's in the plan. But wait a second, Doug. You said these men have free will to choose whatever they want. And in fact, it's demonstrated in this passage in chapter 11. If you looked in Daniel 3, it's talking about uh, Alexander the Great. He says, and a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do just as God instructs him. No, that's not what it says. And he will do as he pleases. As he pleases. Now, is the Bible true there that, that Alexander could do whatever he wanted? Yeah, it is. You look in Daniel 11, verse 16. And he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and nobody will be able to withstand him. And he will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. As he pleases. Now, what you've got to understand here is there is a God who can write down a plan and have things work out just exactly the way he wants and still let all human beings do whatever they want. Because he knows ahead of time what they are going to do. Does that mean they're forced to do it? No. He just knows. And so his plan puts together all of that unbelievable knowledge. How could somebody know all of that? Well, when you're omniscient, it's easy. And that's what God is doing. He lets men do 
whatever they want because they always do what's according to his plan. Now, there's something else that most people don't picture God doing. When these people, and I don't care who it is, whether it's Alexander or Antiochus or Charlemagne or Adolf Hitler or Mussolini or Putin or anyone else, listen to what it says in Psalm 2, 1 through 4. Why are the nations in a uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the high heavens laughs. God laughs at them. And more, the Lord scoffs at them. Now that seemed pretty strong. Do you think God is laughing at It says he does. When they say, we're going to do this and we're going to do this, and we're going to get our way and ha, 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 you think so. Just you wait. It's amazing. It is amazing what God is like that because he can do exactly that. I remember I had a friend and he and I made an agreement once because I was going to Israel and I was going to Israel during the time that the Rose Bowl was going to be played. And the number one team in the nation was playing the number two teaching in the nation. Number uh, two was USC, and number one was the University of Texas. And I'm going to be in Israel. I can't find out. I can't watch the game. Can't it happen? And my friend made agreement. I won't watch it either. We'll have a DVD, and when we get back, we'll watch it together. Unfortunately, somebody told me the score on the way back. And I was really ticked. But I pretended like I didn't hear it. We went into, we watched the game. And at the end of the game, it looks terrible. There's hardly any time yet. USC has the ball. They're on like their own 40-yard line. It's fourth down. They need one yard. Just one yard. They get that yard. The game's over. Time to run out. So the guy said, oh, no, what are we going to do? Don't worry. We don't have a problem here. Trust in your team and your coach. Yeah. But that's the way it is with God. He knows what's going to happen. There's no worries for him. He laughs at these kind of things. And we need to see that. But I think there's one other lesson for us I think we need to see in relation to national leaders. You see, our last president, I believe, was special. We didn't have a, have a president like that. He may be the greatest president our country's had since Abraham Lincoln. He may be better than, than Ronald Reagan. But I saw a book on a book stand, and it said... In Trump, we trust. And that started eating at me. There are people who you can talk to. You say, yes, he was a great president. But you know, he's got to stop this cursing. And he does. Don't, don't say anything wrong about Trump. Don't be attacking him. We need to understand. What made our country great in the first place, because it was in God we trust. And if we're going to get back again to being great, it's going to be because in God we trust. Without that, we're going to lose. Now, something else I see in this passage, because as war goes back and forth, and, and things, finances are maybe not as secure as we think they are. We can't let ourselves become dependent on material values, I see in this passage. You need to ask yourself the question sometimes, do you own the money or does the money own you? You remember what Matthew said in chapter 6, verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth 
and rust and inflation. No, it didn't say inflation. Moth and rust destroy and, and where thieves break through and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break. For where your treasure is, there your heart shall be also. Maybe consider again also. By your great wisdom, Ezekiel said in, in 28.5, by your trade you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you and the most ruthless of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. Could America be facing that? Well, wait, is there anybody in the world who really would like to conquer us? Yeah, what a foolish question to ask. Even Iran wants to do that. So, what is it that we focus on? From this passage, what is the key thing to focus on? Let me tell you, I believe that when it comes to testing us, there are only two major types of testing that God gives us. One, adversity. And when he tests us in adversity, he's testing our faith. Will you trust me? The second type of test is prosperity. In prosperity, he's testing your integrity. Your integrity, especially of your commitments to him. Now, America has been enjoying prosperity for how long? And our integrity has continued to go down and down and down where we say sin is good and righteousness is bad. And so the test of adversity is coming. There's one promise that we should always keep in our hearts as a result of that. It's found in 2 Timothy 2.13, a book we're going to study after we finish Daniel. In that passage, it says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Isn't it great to have a God that even if we are faithless, he will remain. You know, we tend to think, you keep your word, I'll keep mine. That's not the way God works. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could get together today and we could study your word. I thank you for proving to us you have everything written down in your book of truth, your scripture of truth, and that it's going to come to pass no matter what we do or what we say or what anybody else does or says. Help us to understand you are in control and you are going to bring things about when you are ready. And you're not being slow in your promise. You're being loving and merciful to those who haven't chosen you yet. Help us, Father, to be willing to be used by you to lead them towards the right choice as soon as they can. Now, Father, protect our nation. And in particular, I pray that you turn the hearts of those nine men and women sitting on the Supreme Court. How amazing it could be if we could have a 9-0 decision that stops the killing of babies. What would that say to our nation? What could we proclaim as the victory of you in changing their hearts? God, I pray that you will do that. But if not, please come back soon. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. 